Good morning. My name is Daniel. Uh, and if you grabbed a bulletin on your way in, or if you can read the screen behind me, today we're starting a new study in the book of Haggai. And I know what you're thinking. Who on earth is Haggai? Or what is Haggai? And no, I'm not talking about the Scottish dish. That's haggis. This is Haggai. It's a prophet, okay? And if you're trying to find Haggai, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up there. Uh, And if you're trying to find it in your Bible, the best place to find it is you actually start in the New Testament. And then you go backwards into the Old Testament, two books. And then you're going to land in Haggai, which is in a section of the Bible known as the Prophets. And I know your second question that you're asking now, now that you know where it's at and you know who Haggai is, is why on earth are we studying Haggai? After all, it seems like a kind of an irrelevant book. It's short if you have it in front of you. It's only two chapters long. It it might even fit on one page of your Bible. And not only that, it seems to be a part of the Bible that seems extremely foreign to us and just inapplicable to our lives today. After all, like what, what can a person or a people that lived thousands and thousands of years ago meaningfully say to us today we live in the 21st century so why study Haggai well I can think of a number of reasons so how much time do you have I'm I'm just joking I'm gonna leave it to two okay two reasons why we should study Haggai the first is this I'm convinced convinced of this there is no greater portion of the Bible that we misunderstand more than prophecy and Haggai is a prophet right sometimes we think of prophecy And maybe you're thinking this now. You're thinking, oh, this is the person who's going to talk to me about something that's going to happen in the distant future and we should be kind of scared about it, right? But that's true, right? Uh, Prophets sometimes tell us stuff about the future and Haggai's going to do that actually in the next couple weeks that we're together. We're going to notice he makes future predictions. But that's not the primary thing that prophets do. And here's what the primary thing prophets do. They do this. They are the mouthpiece of God. They are people who stand in the place of God and address God's people in order to get their attention. You can, you can put it this way, right? Prophets want us to see the world from the perspective of God. Because by nature, right, by nature, I don't see the world clearly because I wear glasses. So I can kind of see, you know, somebody over here is wearing a blue shirt. I can see your hair color. I can make out a couple of your features, but without my glasses, it's hopeless. And By nature, the Bible says, unless we see the world from God's perspective, it's hopeless for us as well. So what we need to do is see the world from the lens of God, the perspective of God. And now I can see Ken Bishar is wearing a blue shirt. My wife was in first service and I could see that she is beautiful, right? And I'm convinced in our world, there's nothing we need more than that, to see the world from the perspective of God, right? We live in a world where there's such a thing as fake news. What does that even mean? Fake news. We don't even know what's true, what's false. We also live in a world where all things are kind of relative or subjective, right? There's no real truth. You know, I have my truth, you have your truth, and we'll let bygones be bygones. We can't know what's really true. Even things that are as basic as our biology are up for interpretation in our world. And we also live in a world where, you know, we can kind of choose the truth that we want. If you're on social media, it's as easy as a dislike or a block to just hear the opinions that we like. For some of us, we choose the news truth that we want. It's MSNBC or Fox News or New York Times, Washington Post, or if you're the conspiratorial type, you know, Infowars, right? If there's an Illuminati somewhere. And many of us think, you know, prophecy is confusing, it's obscure, it's kind of scary, but it's actually meant to bring clarity. It's meant to help us see the world from the perspective of God, from the lens of God. So that's the first reason we're studying Haggai. Second reason is that 
this is true of the prophets in general, but Haggai particularly, prophecy is really challenging. A.W. Tozer, who was a Christian writer, has a quote that I love. He said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Haggai is going to challenge what comes to our mind when we think about God. He's going to try and give us a picture of a big God. Some time ago, there was a book published in the early 90s called When People Are Big and God is Small. And the premise of that book was this, that oftentimes our anxieties and our frustrations, our temptations to people please and our fears, they all stem from having a picture of God that is far too small and a picture of other human beings that is way too big. So we live with the anxieties of trying to please people instead of fearing and pleasing God. So Haggai is going to challenge us because he's going to say the antidote to those anxieties and fears and difficulties is that we have to change our mind, what comes to mind when we think about God. All right? So Haggai will challenge us in that way. And commentators call Haggai the questioning prophet. I had a friend when I lived in Nashville before I came to Colorado who was really good at this, right? Whenever he wanted to challenge me on something, he would always ask intentional questions. He wouldn't do it directly. He wouldn't say, hey, Daniel, you did this wrong. He would always ask me intentional questions. Maybe you have a friend like that. So he knew I had a temptation to people please, right? And especially actually when I'm preaching, I do this. But he would say to me, he would say, hey, Daniel, you know, I noticed in your sermon, you said X. Why didn't you say it like Y? It seems like the Bible, you know, it kind of said it like Y. Why did you do that? See, he didn't challenge me directly. He asked an intentional question to expose me. And that's actually what Haggai does. He's the questioning prophet who's going to ask us questions in order to get us to see the world from God's perspective. And it's going to be a challenge. So the first question Haggai wants us to wrestle with this morning the challenge he wants to give us is what are your priorities? What are your priorities? What do you spend your time on? What occupies your Monday through Saturday and Sunday? What do you spend your money on? What do you devote your energy to? He's going to ask us to examine that. What are your priorities? And if you have your Bible, again, this is Haggai chapter 1. We're going to read through the passage and then explore this question together. What are your priorities? So we're going to begin in verse 1. This is the word of God. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this, my house, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. It's the word of God. So what are your priorities? I used to be a youth pastor, and I did this thing with my youth students. Every time I would gather with a new group of students, I would have them do this activity, and I encourage you to do this as well, right? So take out a piece of paper if you have one. But what I would have them do is I would have them list the top five priorities in their life. And it was, it was always so funny because no matter who it was, whatever background they came from, the list was always the same. It always went like this. Number one, God. Two, family, friends, school, then activities or sports. And then I said, okay, now I want you to imagine that you're in Harry Potter, okay? Your friend throws an invisibility cloak over himself and he's following you around for an entire week. And he's taking notes on everything that you do. And at the end of the week, he's going to hand in what are the priorities of you. And you know what their priority list looked like? It was completely upside down, right? Instead of God, family, friends, school, sports, it was sports, school, friends, family, God, right? And uh, it's making us ask the question, hey, what are, what are our priorities? I actually wrote down my priorities. Uh, just to be full disclosure for you guys, here are my priorities, right? Top five, God, family, friends, work, and leisure, Okay, those are my top five priorities, as I would state them. But then there's this really bad thing on your iPhone. It's called screen time. And you can check actually what you spend your time doing. And I'm going to give you the real top five, all right? The first one is YouTube, watching Simpsons clips. That's number one. The second one is reading obscure theological blogs. That counts for God, by the way, okay? That counts. Number three is cleaning the house. Number four and five are family and work. And I just say that because I want some of them to arrive in my top five because I don't want to tell you what the real four and five were, okay? And here's the point. The Bible says this. The Bible says there are profound implications for how you order your life, how you prioritize your life. Judah and Israel were people in the Old Testament. They were considered God's bride. God had a covenant relationship with them and he considered them his bride and he was their groom. And like any marriage, there were good things about this relationship. There was intimacy, there was exclusivity, there was blessing, there was love, and there was joy, and there was peace. But like any marriage, if you don't prioritize your spouse, there's what? There's conflict. And ultimately, that conflict leads to infidelity. And that's exactly what happened. Israel and Judah, they deprioritized God, and they decided they wanted to worship idols and ultimately, the result of that was separation from God. They broke their covenant marriage vows and they were exiled. They were taken out of Jerusalem and sent off into a foreign land. They were given over to their idols. They were given over to their infidelity. And they were given over to the nations that they wanted to be like. So in the year 587 BC, God allowed the strongest empire in the world, the Babylonian empire, to come march into Jerusalem, completely obliterate the city, obliterate the temple, and carry the people off by force into Babylon. Recently, uh, this was last October, my wife and I, we visited New York for the first time. 
and we visited the World Trade Center Museum. Has anybody ever been there? So when you, when you walk in there, there's pictures everywhere of before September 11th, 2001, and then pictures after September 11th, 2001. And I want to show a picture. This is one that stood out in my mind, and I had to dig for it. This picture of uh, New York City after September 11th attacks. So you see there, right, the twisted iron, the rubble, cement just obliterated. It's complete desolation. And here's the thing, all right, as we study through Haggai, I want you to keep this picture in mind, okay? Because this picture is the context for Haggai. Haggai is the story of God's people, God speaking to his exiled people who are returning home with the commission to rebuild the temple. And this is what they arrived to, something like this. And we see that in verse 1, right? Haggai is speaking directly to these people. We're told that the word of the Lord through Haggai spoke to Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judah, to Joshua, who was the high priest, and Haggai is to speak to the people on behalf of God. And he's speaking to them about a particular problem, right? Because the exiles returned in the year 537. They built the foundation of the temple three years after that in 534, but now we're told that it's the year 520, so that's 14 years after, and we're told that the work has stopped on the temple and it continues to look like this. And so Haggai addresses the people directly. Beginning in verse 2, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this, my house, lies in ruins? So you can see, right, there's two things going on here. First, we see the people's excuse, right? The people's excuse is this, that the time just hasn't come. We're busy. We're busy people. We're we're preoccupied, you know. Our desire's there. We want to rebuild the house of the Lord. Absolutely, we want to, but we'll get to it later, right? We, we, We intend to, but it's just not time right now. And today we have something very similar to that, right? When it comes to kind of our spiritual priorities with God, sometimes those can take a back seat. We say things like, you know, I'd love to join, but I'm just so busy right now, or my schedule's packed, or it's the summer, or things are crazy at work. And see, that's similar to the same kind of excuses that the people in Haggai are dealing with. And then the second thing we see is God's reply, right? He says, Hey, the time is not your problem, right? He points out time's not your problem. How you prioritize your time, that's what's the problem. In verse 4, he says, hey, you guys, you guys live in paneled houses. You, you've spent a lot of time around your life and, and your comfort and, and your luxury, but my house is the thing that lies in ruins. See, so it's not a problem of time. It's how you prioritize that time. And I heard a story recently. Uh, I, I do a lot of work in Starbucks, by the way. So if you come to Deer Creek Church in the middle of the week and you don't see me here, it's because I'm not, it's not because I'm not working, okay? I promise I'm at Starbucks working. So go to Starbucks and you'll see me there. But I was sitting in Starbucks and there were two, two people in there and one uh, was a Christian. The other said that he was a Christian as well. And apparently these two lived with each other in another city and they had moved to Colorado. And one of the guys was speaking to the other one and said, hey, you know, we moved here and we are both going to the same church, but I never see you anymore. It seems like you're always busy. You're off going doing something. We used to do small groups together and never see you. And the other guy said, yeah, man, well, thing is, I didn't move to Colorado to go to church. 
And guys, here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt anybody, right? I have a, if you want to see a busy schedule or deprioritizing things, I am public enemy number one, right? But here's the thing. And, and we live in a great city, right? With a lot of things to do. There are four major sports teams in Denver. Hallelujah, right? Praise God. Amen? We have 300 days of sunshine. We have skiing at our fingertips, And here's the thing, we spend time on these things, though, while oftentimes our spiritual priorities take a hit. And so God's challenge through Haggai is, what are your priorities? What do you spend your time on? What are your priorities? And he's going to challenge us with three brief things here. And the first thing he's going to challenge us to do is flip our priorities or be rebuked by God. It's his first challenge. Flip your priorities or be rebuked by God. Well, I used to be a baseball coach, and we had this thing called kangaroo court. So during the games, what I would do is if any, like, mishap happened or somebody didn't do anything uh, correct, you know, I would write it down. So I would say, oh, third inning, Mike didn't lay down a bunt. And then after the game, we'd all stand in a circle, and the spotlight would go on Mike, and I'd say, hey, Mike, what happened in the third inning? He'd say, oh, you know, I, I didn't lay down that bunt. And I'd say, okay, and what was the result of that? Well, you know, the runner wasn't able to go to second because of that, and then when the next guy got a hit, he wasn't able to score, so we didn't get a run because I didn't lay down the bunt. So we placed the spotlight on him, and we'd say, what did you do, and what was the result? And then he'd have to pay me a 10-cent fine, and then afterward, you know, I'd buy, with the multitudes of change that I gathered at the end of the year, we'd have a big party at the end of the year. Well, here's the same thing that God does, right? He puts the spotlight on Judah, and he says, consider your ways. What did you do, and what was the result? And notice what he says beginning in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, consider your ways. You have sown much, meaning you've worked. You've worked on your harvest. You've gone out in anxious toil. You thought, I have to work and work and work, and then what's the result? And I harvested little. No matter how much work I do, there's more work when I get back. And then he says, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. Have you ever noticed when you eat something, then you're hungry again? You can never satisfy hunger. There's always another hunger right after it. You clothe yourselves, you worry about what you're going to wear, you worry about your beauty, you worry about the way that you look, and no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. What God is trying to get the people to see is that all of these things that have been prioritized of God never lead to the people's satisfaction. John D. Rockefeller, who's considered the wealthiest man to ever live, he was once interviewed one time and was asked, hey, when will it be enough money? You know what his response was? One dollar more. But it never satisfies. And the the reason is clear. God says immediately in verse 9, notice what he says. Why? Why? Why am I never satisfied, declares the Lord, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. In other words, your priorities are disordered and you're never satisfied as a result. I I failed. I'm I'm going to admit something here. I failed high school algebra. Algebra 1. But I remember one thing from it. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Does anybody remember that? Right, it's the order of operations. Whenever you're with a math equation, you do the parentheses first, then the exponents, then the multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. And here's the point, that if you are off on any one of those, if you start with multiplication instead of the parentheses, then there's nothing you can do to correct it. If you start off with multiplication, you can't work the equation in any way in order to get the right answer. So... 
what God is doing here is he was rebuking us and challenging us and he's asking, hey, what are you starting with? What are you building your life on? What is that thing that is taking priority and precedence over God? What are your priorities? And notice God says, here's the reason that you're never satisfied. Therefore, verse 10, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So God speaks directly and clearly, saying, because you have not built your life on me, I have blown away that which you brought home. And the people would have heard this word, and they would have heard directly what it was a reference to, because it was a reference back to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, God is listing out the covenant curses that would befall Israel if they didn't follow God and obey his voice. It reads like this, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments or his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruits of the ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down until you are destroyed. So imagine what these people are thinking, right? These people are thinking, why are we miserable? Why are we unsatisfied? Why does it feel as if we never have enough? And God is saying, hey, it is because you are actually under my curse. And I I know we hear that word, right? Curse, that sounds extremely harsh. It sounds archaic. It sounds outdated. It sounds like something we should never talk about. But you have to understand when a curse is illustrated in the Bible, it's always put alongside blessing, And a blessing is always illustrated by God making his face shine upon his people. Just like a newborn in the hands of his or her mother and a mother looking down on the newborn, that is God's blessing. And God's curse is him turning his face away. When I first became a Christian, the thing that I struggled with most was internet pornography. And I remember I was sitting down at my table and I was doing my morning devotions. I was reading the Bible and I was actually reading about the curse of God. And I remember being overwhelmed with temptation. And I remember thinking, God, I wish there was just this box, like a small, tiny box that was deep enough and dark enough and below the ground enough where I could enter it. I could succumb to any temptation that comes my way and then I would come out and everything would be okay. But friends, do you realize what I was asking for? I realized in that moment, I was asking for God to turn his face away. I was actually asking that God would curse me. See, God's curse is him allowing us to build our lives and continue on in our lives and allow the trajectory of our lives to continue without him stopping to intercede and give us his blessing. See, God's curse is always meant not to stay just as a curse and make us feel terrible. It's always meant to show us our need for something else and made to make us turn in repentance toward God. And that's, that's exactly what Haggai does. He doesn't just leave it at a curse. He says, Second point, second challenge, flip your priorities and repent. It's the second point, flip your priorities and repent. Now we don't use that word repent a whole lot, so I'm gonna illustrate it this way. So 
I've heard, and I've, I, think I, I think I remember watching a video to this effect, that there are these researchers who they put a, a cage in the middle of the jungle, they put a banana in the cage, okay? And after a while, eventually, a monkey is going to arrive, and he's going to put his hand in the cage, and he's going to try and grab onto that banana. And the thing is, is if he tries to pull his hand out, he can't. But if he would just drop the banana, he could pull his hand out. And here's the thing that they found out. A monkey will actually go to that cage, put their hand in, grab the banana, and they will hold onto it so long that they will eventually die rather than let go of that banana. All the monkey has to do is let it go and he'll be free. And that is exactly an illustration of what repentance means. Repentance means let go of your priorities, what you think will give you life, and instead embrace what God says will give you life, to open and receive his priorities and let it go of your own. And, and Haggai puts that explicitly in verse 7. And in verse 8, he says, don't work on your own houses. Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build my house. Don't seek your own pleasure or your own agenda. Instead, build my house that I may take pleasure in it. Don't seek your own reputation and glory. Build my house that I may be glorified. In other words, live for me, glorify me, make your priorities revolve around me. That's what it means to repent. So if you take one thing away from the sermon, repentance, monkey, repentance, monkey, repentance, monkey, right? Think of that, okay? And why though, why, why is God so concerned about his temple anyway? Why is he so concerned about making that a priority? Why is he making such a big deal about this? All the focus is on the temple, his worship, on God's glory. I was actually talking to a good friend of mine recently, and we were talking about kind of this very thing. And he was saying, you know, if a, if a person always said, hey, focus on me, focus on my agenda, my priorities, we would call that person self-centered and egocentric. And I responded, well, yeah, but you have to understand how special and what the temple represented. See, the temple was the presence of God on earth. If, if you wanted to meet with God, you had to go to the temple because God dwelt there specially. If you wanted a relationship with him, you had to go there. And the temple was also the place of the forgiveness of God. It was the place where a priest would make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. But most importantly, the temple was a place that foreshadowed Jesus. Remember that passage that Aaron read at the beginning of our worship service? In John chapter 2, Jesus said, hey, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise again. You realize what Jesus was doing. He was standing in Jerusalem. The temple is right there, and Jesus is saying, that is all pointing to me. I'm the true temple. I'm, I am the true presence of God on earth. See, the Son of God came and took on flesh and was present among us. Jesus was the true priest who sacrificed himself for us. He was the true sacrifice of God who went to the cross and sacrificed himself for our sins. And he was the true restored temple that was brought back to life in the resurrection. You, think of it this way, okay? You guys remember Polaroids? Remember Polaroids? 1995, remember, think back then, right? Polaroids. Remember, you take a picture of a Polaroid and it would come out what color? Gray. And then you'd have to, you know, blow on it and kind of do this thing for a little while. And then finally, after a while, you know, you'd see, oh, the tree, there's a tree and all oh, the colors are starting to come in. That's blue. And then, oh, yeah, yeah, there's me. Oh, oh, this is a picture of me at Six Flags Elitch Gardens. Yeah. Awesome. 
And, and that's what the temple was. It was a Polaroid of Jesus to come. It, it showed us shapes of, of what to expect when Jesus would come. So God says, be concerned about the temple. It matters because the temple is a sign to all people that God is going to send his own son to sacrifice his son for our sins. Friends, that is not self-centered or egocentric anymore than a doctor who has a shot that could cure AIDS or any disease and is pleading with people, come to me and receive your healing. Don't you see when God calls us to repent, he's telling us let go of that which cannot heal and embrace the healing of forgiveness of sins found in Christ alone. He alone is the true temple who can satisfy. Friends, if you are, you know, assuming or uh, if you're aspiring parents in here, I can speak, you know, with full experience, that hoped for child will never heal your deepest problem. Men, men, a busier schedule and number of promotions and titles will never heal that which you are struggling with. High schoolers, where are you at? Somebody in the first service said sleeping. (laughs) High schoolers, an ACT score will never heal you of your deepest problem, not even a 36. Young people like myself, millennials, affording a down payment will only make you broke. It will not heal the thing that you struggle with most. And singles, you know, that, that person that you think will heal your deepest problem and fulfill your deepest longing will never do so. It cannot heal. And God knows this. And he says, these things cannot save you from your sins. The thing you really deal with and only repentance and belief in Jesus alone can do that. You know, we hear today, right? We hear today, we hear words like rebuke and repent. And, you know, we ask, how does that relate to Jesus? Jesus seems loving. That just does not seem loving, you know? And all this talk about repentance and rebuking, it seems so extreme, so out in the left field. Like, how could Jesus be about that kind of stuff? And, and if that's what you're thinking right now, then I want to say, great, thank you so much because you are finally understanding how the Bible talks about a big God. And, You have to wrestle with this, right? Jesus' very first words of ministry, do you know what they are? They are this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to me and believe in the gospel. The message of Jesus is the message of Haggai. It is repent, turn from that which cannot satisfy. Let go of the banana and turn to me that can ultimately satisfy and heal the very thing that you need most. You need the forgiveness of sins. You know, oftentimes we want a Jesus. I want a Jesus, right? I want this kind of God. We want a God who soothes, who says, hey, you are okay. You're okay. You're fine just the way you are. But friends, hear me. We, myself included, do not need only a God who soothes. Friends, we need a God who saves. We need a God who saves us. We need a God who will sacrifice himself for us on a cross so that we might be forgiven. We need that kind of God. And we need to repent. We need to prioritize God with our time, our money, our our energy. It's kind of like recently, you know, there was those videos of professional athletes with this slogan, I am second. And, And the gist of that was, you know, as celebrities and as Athletes, we're, we're prone to make ourselves first 
But we, as followers of Jesus, want to make ourselves second. God first, me second. That's what it means to repent. It means make God first and say, I am second. And remember, repentance, repentance, you have to hear this, right? Repentance is not get your act together, get things right, and then turn to Jesus. No, repentance is recognize things are not right and then turn to Jesus. It's realizing whatever you are grabbing for will not satisfy and you need to let it go and turn to that which does satisfy, Jesus and Jesus alone, the true temple. Now, please do. Last challenge of Haggai, and I promise this is the shortest of the challenges, okay? It's this, flip our priorities and respond. Flip our priorities and respond. Muhammad Ali, the heavyweight uh, champion of the world some time ago, uh, you know, he wasn't known for being the most modest individual. In fact, he had a nickname for himself. It was the greatest. So he wasn't necessarily known to be a humble guy. Well, I was told one time as he was flying over the Atlantic to go to Europe one time that the captain got over the airplane microphone and said, guys, we're about to fly through some moderate turbulence. It's time to buckle up your seats, flight attendants, make sure everybody's okay, but then get back to your seats as well. And Muhammad Ali being the greatest, didn't buckle his seatbelt, right? And the flight attendant comes back through the aisle and there, you know, finally one builds up the courage to go and speak to him and says, Mr. Ali, I know, I know you don't want to, but please, you have to buckle your seatbelt. The captain said so. And he said, honey, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> and she, without skipping a beat, said, and Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> I mentioned that story because, you know, that, that was the story of Judah. That was the story of Israel. They thought they were Superman. They thought, hey, we have this relationship with God. We are untouchable. Nothing can separate us from God. And so when God pursued them, he sent prophets after them to go and tell them this message. They said, no, you know what? We prefer false prophets instead, ones that are tell us, hey, it's okay, we're fine. We don't need that. Instead of fearing God and, and reverencing him and you know, having awe before him and a humble heart, they treated him as if he was to be taken lightly. They thought they were Superman and they never responded. And here's the most refreshing and beautiful picture that we see in Haggai. It begins in verse 12. Notice their response and how it it is completely different from the response of Judah of old. First in verse 12, we see that Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. See, they treat God's word now for what it is. It's God's word. It's not suggestions. It's not good advice. It's, it's God's word, which is to be submitted to and they humble their hearts before him and they obey it. They submit to it. They make it their standard for living. And then number two, you see that the people feared the Lord. Meaning they don't take God lightly anymore. They revere God. They respect God. They have awe and humility before God. And I have to say this, when the Bible speaks about fear, it's not a slavish fear. It's not like a, a slave fearful of his or her master and cowering in a corner because he or she hears the master's footsteps. No, this is a fear of a son or daughter who would hate to disappoint his or her father. That's the kind of fear it's talking about. And then lastly, notice verse 14, they work on the house of the Lord, meaning they actually repented. They've done a complete 180. Remember how the prophecy started? Verse three, it was they're working on their own paneled houses. Now verse 14, they're working on the house of God. 
And I love what happens. They were once separated, right? Exiled people. And then they hear the word of God come to them, verse 13. And what does he say? He says, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. I am with you. They have now a restored relationship with God. And notice the right after that, it said that God stirred up their spirits to work. So the God who calls us to repent is also the God who gives us his spirit and the power to repent. Made me think of this story that I heard recently. I'm going to close on this. It's a story of a man named Marcel Sternberger. Marcel Sternberger uh, lived in New York City. It is a true story, by the way. It was in Reader's Digest in the 1940s. Its title was, It Happened on a Brooklyn Subway. So Marcel Sternberger, he lived in New York City, and he decided one day that instead of going into Manhattan, he realized his friend was sick, and he just remembered this. So, you know, just by happenstance, he says, I'm going to take this subway into Brooklyn and visit my sick friend. So he gets on the subway, and it's a packed subway, and right as the doors are about to close, somebody who's sitting on a seat right next to the entrance gets out and rushes out the door, and noticing that nobody else decided to take it, Sternberger slipped in and took the seat right next to the man. And something happened. He noticed that the man that was sitting next to him was reading a newspaper, but it was something that was different. It was a Hungarian newspaper. Uh, Sternberger spoke a little bit of Hungarian, so he noticed he was reading this, and it puzzled him. So Sternberger questioned the man. He asked if he was from Hungary. He asked if he spoke Hungarian, and he asked, why are you reading this newspaper? And this man responded, I'm looking for my wife. I came from Debrecen in Hungary. I was conscripted by the Russians to go and bury the German dead, and by the time I came back, I found out my wife had been taken to a concentration camp. But shortly after that, the Allies came and rescued them, and I have no idea where she is. I'm just hoping against hope that she's still alive and that for some chance the Allies brought her instead to America. And Sternberger, he starts thinking, because he remembers, I was at a party a few weeks ago, and I was speaking to a woman who said she lived in Debrecen. And she was saying, I had a husband, and she said she had a husband who was taken away by the Russians. And she went on to Auschwitz, she was rescued, and she was brought to New York City. And Sternberger thought, hey, this is a lovely lady. So he actually took down her phone number because he actually wanted to go and date her. And he remembered her name was Maria Paskin. So he turned to this man and said, hey, hey, what was the name of your wife? He said, Maria Paskin. He said, and your name? Bella Paskin. So he got off the subway and he said, hey, I, I'm getting off at this, at this stop. Please come with me. Just trust me. Come with me. You won't understand, but come with me. And so he followed Sternberger. Paskin followed Sternberger and Sternberger went to the phone, dials a number, and Sternberger, after a few rings, heard a feeble, feeble voice answer the phone and said, Maria, this is Marcel Sternberger. Do you remember me? We met at a party a few weeks ago. Maria, what is your husband's name? She said, Bella Paskin. And he said these words, Maria, you are about to witness the greatest miracle of your life. Hang on. And he took the receiver and he told Bella Paskin to come over. And he said the sobs were so uncontrollable. All he could hear was Maria, Maria, Maria. I cannot believe this. And the article in Reader's Digest ends with these words. Skeptical persons will no doubt attribute the events of that memorable afternoon to mere chance. Is it a chance that made Sternberger decide to visit his sick friend or to take a subway line he had never taken before? 
Was it chance that the open seat was next to Paskin reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? Friends, there is a greater miracle that has happened. Just as Bella Paskin pursued his wife until God intervened, the God of the universe is pursuing each and every one of us whom he calls his bride And he has made a way possible that he can actually say the words, I am with you. And he did it by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to restore our relationship with God. See, when Jesus climbed the cross, he bore the covenant curses that we all deserve in our place so that we could see the face of our creator again and receive the love that he has for us. Repent. It's the most beautiful words in scripture. It tells us to let go of that which cannot satisfy and come to the God who alone can satisfy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the faithful husband who pursues us, your bride, the church, and that you loved us even to death, that you were willing to sacrifice your own son so that we may be reunited and we might be able to have the comforting words that you are with us. Father, thank you that you have filled us with your spirit and given us the power to repent. I pray for those who maybe have never repented before or those of us who still need daily to repent and turn to you, that you would empower us by the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of us to do that. And I pray, Father in heaven, that you would comfort us with these words as we seek to live out in obedience to you, your word, these words that you are with us. Help us to turn to you with that great comforting promise. We pray these things in Jesus' name by the power of your spirit.